Hey guys and welcome to the Surf Coast Creators Podcast. I'm your host Ben Hucker. Great to have you tuning in today. If this is your first time tuning into the, the podcast, hope you enjoy today's episode. But what is this podcast all about? Well, we tell the stories of doers, thinkers and creative people from the Surf Coast in Australia. Why do we do it? Well, we think the Surf Coast is a melting pot for creative minds from the city, the country and the coast and we wanted to get their stories out there. So if you're tuning in today, we hope you enjoyed today's episode. We're Got a really, really exciting guest, and since we're locked down and all in Victoria, thanks to Mr. Dan Andrews, uh, we decided to open up the borders on the podcast, and we actually interviewed a really, really successful photographer from Margaret River, all the way in Margaret River, so about three hours south of Perth. Uh, his name is Ren McGann, and he was the 2020 Nikon Surf Photographer of the Year. He's got a massive story. He actually grew up in the bush off-grid. He had a bit of trouble with chemotherapy as well and a lot of health issues in his early 20s, but he's overcome that to become a really, really successful and amazing surf photographer in addition to doing a lot of portraiture work and family portraits and other things as well to make his way as a creative. So he's a really humble guy, a funny guy, so really hope you enjoyed today's episode. I'm your host, Ben Hucker. This is the Surf Coast Creators Podcast, episode number 36. Hey listeners and welcome to the Surf Coast Creatives Podcast. I'm your host Ben Hucker. With me as always, co-host Jess. Welcome Jess. Thanks Ben, good to be here. Waiting patiently on the other end of the line, all the way in Western Australia, actually our first interstater on the podcast. Given that we're locked down, we thought we'd open up the borders on our podcast. We thought we'd reach out and catch up with an amazing surf photographer, as as you heard in the intro. Please welcome to the Surf Coast Creatives Podcast, Ren McGahn. There you go, guys. Thanks for having me. Great to have you on the show. Now, anyone in ocean photography, surf photography, probably don't need much of an introduction, but if you want to give us a little brief intro about who you are and what you're about. Sure. I suppose we'd class as a big wave surf photographer, and that's kind of been the main obsession with my journey in photography, but kind of the lesser known stuff that I do that I don't really publish on any of my platforms is like conceptual portraiture and I'm trying to bleed a bit more landscape photography in there as well now. But, yeah, the main thing I've kind of been known for in the audience would be the big wave scene down here in southwest WA. That's cool. We did an intro before the podcast started and obviously introduced you as an ocean photographer. So I'm actually glad I asked that question because we had no idea about your portraiture work. Did you publish that anywhere? You're not ready to publish it? uh, Not really. I mean, I just do it for fun and something that I've found helps immensely with my process in learning editing is to learn a different genre of photography and then try and cross pollinate and apply those techniques to landscape and surf photography. I can't wait to chat a bit more about that a little bit later in the podcast but one of our first segments on the podcast is called Breaking the Ice so we'll get through that. Here we go. Question number one, where were you born? So I was born in a tiny, tiny little country town in Bailingup um, which is probably about an hour inland from Margaret River and uh, my parents were big time hippies and we lived in a converted bus in the bush with no power and my mum did a home birth in the bus for all of me and my two brothers yes yeah we had a a generator if we ever needed power and yeah it was pretty interesting start to to life I think out there yeah that's cool that is very cool like (laughs) completely off-grid home birthing completely off-grid that's crazy. So, and bailing up as well. Bailing up or bailing up? Uh, bailing up. Yeah, bailing up. It's a magnificent part of the world. It's where you get those jarrah trees and curry trees as well, don't you? Yeah, a lot of natural bush out there. It's, it's still like a tiny town now. It's kind of trying to put itself on the map and doing some some trendy things. But yeah, it's it's a blip on the map. It must have been a lot of fun growing up there. Did you stay in the forest and grow up off grid or? Did you move um, elsewhere? Yeah, my, my parents split pretty early on. but And then from that property that I was born on, um, my dad ended up selling that and buying another property just down the road. So we've still got 80-acre farm there and kind of split growing up between living in Fremantle and living there. So, oh, cool. Yeah, it was definitely, I'll, I'll eternally be grateful for the opportunity to have roots in the country, I think. Yeah. So question number one, where we born, bailing up and then spend a bit of time in Frio. Question number two. What's your favourite activity to zone out? Freediving and big wave surf stuff, but it's pretty hard to zone out when you're doing big wave surf stuff because just being in proximity to 
big waves and jet skis and things like that. So <laughs> something for relaxation would definitely be free diving, yeah. That's very cool. We interviewed the world record holder for the biggest free dive under ice two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Ant Williams, did you tune into that podcast? No, I'm definitely going to give it a listen though. Yeah, he, he dives 70 metres under ice in Norway on one breath, obviously, and just incredible. Like the way he just yeah, set about breaking that world record. Took him 18 years of training and mental training as well to get there. So incredible story if you get a chance. Yeah, no, I'll jump on it. It's hard enough holding your breath on normal water, let alone ice. <laughs> yeah, our max is about, I think, a minute and a half. And <laughs> Jess, maybe even less. So it's quite a skill. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I'm keen to talk about that later, actually, as a surf photographer and holding your breath. So, but otherwise, big wave surfing as well. That's pretty cool. What's the biggest wave you've ever caught, do you think? I'm not 100% sure. Maybe the kind of 12, 12, 15 foot range. But yeah, not nothing super psycho. It's. Yeah, it's, it's hard when you start looking at wave size in feet. Everyone's yeah. got a different metric that they measure by and obviously you can get waves that are stand tall but aren't really barreling. So, yeah, I mean, I, I was just kind of starting out into that kind of scene and I ended up blowing my knee out pretty bad. So that, that's kind of put a bit of a holder on it. But anything jet ski assist is fun. Actually, we just watched the movie called Breath, which is based on the book written by Tim Winton. Are we talking those sort of waves when you're, when you're out there doing the big wave stuff? The smaller stuff in there, yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of local bombies around here that do barrel probably around the eight-foot mark. Um, and then there's a couple that are a bit more just like big ocean bombies and things like that. They're just, they're just fun, really good for training to get you kind of you and your partner dialed in. Uh, just before I go on to question three, I was just going to ask about the conflict between being a surf photographer and a keen surfer. How do you handle that? pretty easy i mean like my skill level with toe surfing is like not even remotely up there with the people that are riding these big waves so it's either shooting or surfing would be the go yeah i've always found that i've just got myself a water housing prior to christmas actually and i find it tough on really really pumping days when you could probably be out there taking some really awesome shots but there's also that urge to be in the ocean and be surfing as well. Yeah, it's definitely a conflict. But, I mean, around Margaret River, there's nothing really insane that I shoot. Like, most of the shooting that I do is down on the south coast. So, luckily, if I'm hanging around home, it's mainly surf. Yeah, cool. Uh, question number three, full-time creative or part-time? Just branched out into the uh, full-time spectrum with the assistance of a back injury. So, yeah, I think... Been trying to get there for a really long time, but kind of been a little bit too scared to make the jump. Yeah, last year in September, I I think I've done some kind of disc injury. So that kind of just was a big sign from the universe to stop doing manual labour. Yeah. Actually, I saw a post, I think it was October 2020 last year, you decided to take the leap as a full-time creative. Do you want to take us through that for a little bit? Just the decision-making, obviously, that you were injured and... Um, so you were working as a labourer or something beforehand or? Yeah, I mean, I suppose it has to jump back a little bit. Like I used to live up in Exmouth and up there I spent nine years developing a career in driving boats and ecotourism and oil and gas. So I had all these tickets and experience and I thought that was going to be my career long term. And then when I moved to Margaret River, I pretty much had to reinvent everything. And down here, there's not a ton of work and there's not a ton of work that pays very well. So that kind of bled into the journey of doing photography and this kind of stuff but yeah it's just been pinballing around the industries down here and I've worked as a chef and labourer and started an apprenticeship and yeah there's nothing really stuck eh? <laughs> yeah it sounds a lot like Byron Bay, Torquay and a lot of other coastal hotspots but I guess Margaret River is slightly different again because it's it's about three hours from Perth isn't it south of Perth yeah that's right yeah whereas Torquay is you know an hour and 10 hour and 20 to the Westgate Bridge and you can be commuting to the city each day so you can kind of live here have a good life and have a job in the city at the same time and also expanding economy I know things are really really taking off in Margaret River but so there's a bit of a lack of opportunities for for jobs yeah I mean there's always jobs out there I suppose I've just had massive conflict with the whole industry of work and you spend you know 70 percent of your life working and in positions that you know are detrimental to your body your mental health and all these things and I think it's people don't really explore that avenue enough and don't really question it but 
for me personally, I just really struggle to go to a job that is not either mentally challenging or something that's really pushing me forward in learning a new skill. Or, and then there's the whole kind of hierarchy system where you've got boss, employee, and you're viewed as a commodity. And mm. I think that's just something that doesn't really gel with my head. <laughs> yeah. uh, we, we share your beliefs. That's why we live on the surf coast. And I guess it's why we run our own small businesses as well and run a podcast because it's it's challenging and it's a new skill and, you know, you're competing against the big media brands and all the rest. It's fun, challenging, stimulating and wouldn't wouldn't um, trade it for the world. Wouldn't trade it having used to work in finance and uh, Jess having used to work in the in the yachting industry working, what, 80-hour weeks, Jess? Uh, Possibly more? Not Yeah, something like that. But just working for someone else, it's hard to, after working for yourself for such a long time to go back into that, like you said, working yeah. for the boss or your manager or whoever. And if they're, yeah. yeah, it's, it's brutal. Eh? Like I just, it just seems like, it seems like there's a, the industry is saturated with a lot of people that are in positions of power that don't really practice empathy and understanding for other people. And I suppose it works both ways. If you're, a, if you're a crap employee, then, you know, it's hard to kind of ask things, but I think if you do a job and you, you value what the employer is doing and you do the best that you can, you know, it should be rewarded a bit better, I think. Yeah, absolutely. We'll come back to the the transition to a full-time creative, but I'll hand it over to Jess for question number four, breaking the ice. I think I know might know what your answer is going to be, but are you a camper or a glamper? <laughs> yeah, I'm a camper. For me, the um, the more wild, the better. I love going out and just, you know, hunting hunting for food is something that I've kind of grown up doing. So, yeah, I like to go out and get pretty feral. Yeah. <laughs> And do you go back to your farm a lot to do that or do you just go wherever? Yeah, we do a little bit on the farm with bow hunting and things like that. Um, but, yeah, most of the stuff I kind of do is camping around the ocean and spearfishing and fishing and diving oh, nice. and just, yeah, that kind of thing. Yep. So you sound like a proper naturalist, a proper survivalist. So you're not concerned oh. at all about corona and the implications? <laughs> like if the, the supermarket shelves are empty one day, then it doesn't matter to you. Now, the first thing I did when corona hit was bought 24 hunting arrows and told my missus to get all our gear together to go live in the bush and go hunt. <laughs> <laughs> live off the land. Yeah, fully off grid. <laughs> all you need is a phone then, I guess, to post your photos to Instagrams. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just need Wi-Fi. They can shut everything else down. We just need Wi-Fi. That... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, number five, do you have a favourite TV series? Yeah, I mean, I grew up watching The Blue Planet and I've watched that a million times i love tv series and there's there's so many top quality stuff out at the moment but as far as a default one that you could just go back and watch over and over again the cinematography in the blue planet series is just insane and you just sit there and think like how the hell did they even capture this stuff yeah actually i noticed you've done a little bit of videography so has that been a little bit of inspiration for that yeah that's kind of where i'm taking my career now is deep diving into videography and just trying to get set up for that so it's yeah, it's it's hard. <laughs> yeah, uh, videography, I mean, the return on investment, it's just so difficult, isn't it? Because it takes, I mean, a photo you can edit, you can edit for, for hours and hours and hours if you want, but the editing process is typically a little bit quicker than editing a, a stream of videos. So that's probably yeah, the hard it's part. Yeah, all together, but uh, I think it's more dynamic and uh, I'm finding it more rewarding so far, um, okay. but yeah. Just before our next question, Jess, do you think that the surf photography market, photography in general, is just a little bit saturated at the moment? I think anyone that's trying to make it big in that industry at the moment is flogging a dead horse, personally. Yeah, there's just so many people out there that will give their content away for free. And unfortunately, that's really damaged the industry. And, you know, you've got people like Red Bull and all the top magazines and they're paying 50 bucks a shot. So it's, you know, it's, it's super hard to A, get featured in anything um, and B, make money off it. And I think that the saddest part that I've noticed is even if you are getting featured in, uh, in these magazines, that the recognition that you're getting from that or the exposure that you think you're going to get from that, it doesn't match up to your expectation in any way, shape or form. Yeah, that's, we interviewed a former professional photographer called Jeff Crow, who's a big sports photographer. I think he was actually our episode two or three, number two on the podcast. 
really, really popular popular episode. He's now the owner of Bells Beach Brewery here in Torquay. He actually shared, shared a similar opinion. Like it's just, you know, when, you, when you're talking 50 bucks for a photo, a photo that probably would have collected 400, 500 bucks even 20 years ago, it, it's a different world, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's frustrating and sad and you know that whole industry is just going to gradually fall apart and just be basically user-generated content and it is sad but at the same time it's like you just have to think more inventively about the way that you're approaching it are you are you building a brand or a, like an identity in yourself and then doing fine art stuff or I think the only way to make money in that industry now is working hand in hand with athletes and trying to get brand brand deals because they're probably the only ones that are paying money for content yeah i'm keen to talk about some of your some of your income sources in a moment but uh question number six uh this one's not relevant <laughs> have you ever been to Torquay? well uh, the question is wait wait wait, wait just let me ask <laughs> all right <laughs> have you ever been to uh, Torquay? yeah a long time ago okay well We've got the co- <laughs> the question we've got is where's the first place you would go for a coffee in Torquay? But maybe we'll make it where would where would the first place you'd go for a coffee in Margaret River be? So I'm like incredibly caffeine sensitive, and so I get the largest cappuccino you can get with one shot of coffee in it. So I usually go to somewhere where I know they're going to make my coffee right because. Usually people mishear me and they put an extra shot in, so there's four yeah. shots in there and it just ruins my day. <laughs> <laughs> they probably think you're ca- caffeine sensitive as in you don't get enough from one shot, yeah. so they put in four yeah. instead. So, but yeah, I'm exactly the same. So do you get the shakes if you've had two? Oh, many? man, it just, just ruins me, eh? Yeah. yeah. If I don't have carbohydrates or something with a coffee, I'd, I can't think, I can't even operate, so I know the feeling. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's brutal but then i know people who can drink six a day and they're, they're fine yeah or they drink it before they go to sleep well our last question for the actually we didn't get the answer the favorite favorite cafe he said they'll rip i'll probably get ripped on for it but it's at the servo actually there's a little cafe within within the servo and the guys down there know it's really well so ah, cool. i don't even need to do my order they see my car pull up and they start making the coffee so <laughs> awesome <laughs> nice so it's like a 7-eleven type thing um yeah it's just a, a bit of a like a servo with a little yeah, cafe cool. up one end of it well we'll watch out for that the next time we're in margaret river so. <laughs> and the last question is were you busy during covid or were you flat yeah i suppose when it first went down i was um doing a lot more kind of uh labor work i was working as a welder at that time and my partner was uh halfway through a tattoo apprenticeship yep so yeah she kind of because the studios all shut down it was fortunate that I just had a ton of work on and I could kind of support her during that slack time and yeah now it's the roles are reversed she's back at work uh finished her apprenticeship in tattooing and flat out with work so now she's kind of carrying me a little bit have you got any tattoos to show we can't show it on the podcast but is your partner yeah, my left leg's pretty much fully covered, covered and um yeah, I've, I don't know. I've probably got about 12. Oh, nice. Haven't asked for a refund. <laughs> no, I let her do the very first one that she ever did on me. And yeah, it was good. <laughs> yeah, very nice. And well, thanks for participating in our little segment. We got some um, hits and tips and info in there, which is quite good. So if we can just go back to your origins as a photographer, do you want to take us through that? So where did, where did this passion begin for did surf photography come first or a bit, did, was there a passion for photography in the beginning? Um, yeah, I suppose I've always like I've always had an interest in photography mainly because of the jobs that I've had. So years ago when I was uh, in Exmouth, I've, like, we lived at the Montebellos for four years doing fishing charters and I did pearling and, and then from there kind of went into whale shark charters and running and operating boats in that industry. So just constantly being around really remote, uh, beautiful landscapes and, you know, swimming with tiger sharks or like 15 manta rays or you know, whale sharks and just anything like humpback whales and all that stuff. So always been a desire to try and capture that just for the memory's sake. But I suppose the main entry into photography was when I started going down to the right. And I originally wanted to go down and surf it. And I used a camera to kind of 
capture the wave to try and learn it and figure out the best way to approach it. But yeah, I mean, it just evolved into what it is now. There was never really a desire to do photography as a career. It was more of just kind of a hobby that developed into an obsession and then snowballed into what it is now. Actually, I read that you come up with uh, some type of safety device, was it, for extreme sports? And do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so that was years ago when I kind of come down and uh, I started a brand with a friend of mine um, and had a bit of an idea about developing a a safety impact vest for extreme sports that had the ability to, um, so it had the kind of buoyancy chambers and everything that you see in the big wave surf vest now, but also had the ability to have a secondary chambers that ran along the spine and a collar around the neck that you're able to deploy a spinal brace and neck brace out of the same vest because um, in the areas that these guys surf and not not just isolated for um, big wave surfing but we've got a lot of interest from um, base jumpers and things like that that you know they're all in, always in remote locations and being able to put your own uh, apply your own first aid and put your own body into traction I think was um, yeah, a real big push for what we were doing, but we needed like 250 grand to kind of develop the product safely. And then my business partner ended up breaking his neck, unfortunately. Yeah, he was, he's a really close mate. And, you know, he's luckily he's made almost a full recovery. But yeah, I, I think when something like that, that happens to someone that's so close to you, you don't really care about business at that point. And, you know, we just let it yeah. go by the way. So we had patent pendings and all that thing, which were unfortunately time sensitive. So yeah, that kind of led slip a bit but yeah i think there's still a real need uh or or a spot in the market for that product it's just we just didn't have the resources to pull it off yeah so it was more just a a change of values and a change of feelings about the product and business in general yeah yeah i mean you just you know the health and safety and well-being of your friends always should come first over business i think is he back surfing now and other things or yeah yep he can uh he can surf still, so he's kind of more uh, on the Malibu and things like that. But, I mean, to go through an injury like that and get back to where he is now is, you know, a miracle in itself. So yeah. Yeah, it's an uh, inspirational story for sure. Yeah, we might have to get him on the podcast as well. So there's still nothing in the marketplace for a device like that. No, nah, no. Nah, I think the closest thing, which isn't even remotely close, but is like the avalanche vest that the boys use for snowboarding and things like that. Yep. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a ridiculously hard concept to develop, to be able to figure out a system which will put the body in traction and kind of take the pressure off spinal injuries. But yep. yeah, it's, we just couldn't pull it off. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a really important device. So hopefully that can come to fruition someday. But sounds like it sounds pretty dangerous and all the rest. I mean, a lot of surfers will know about the dangers of surfing big waves and uh, surfing near reefs and everything else. Is the right... The right, do you just want to explain for our listeners exactly what that is? Yeah, so it's a big big wave off the southwest um, of WA and it's basically just surrounded by a ton of deep water and it's just a giant big granite pinnacle that comes up. Um, so because the wave behind or the water behind it's so deep, the, the swell lines coming in don't really lose any of their energy until they hit this granite pinnacle and they, it just basically sucks up and, yeah, throws it's probably up there in one of the heaviest waves in the world, um, pound for pound. But yeah, it gets it gets pretty big, and I've like I've seen it so big, and it probably would have handled that size if it had a bit more tide on it. Does it get to the point where it draws away and you can see the reef? Yeah, I've seen it a few times on that big swell we went out on. So that was like a nine meter swell with um, five meter seas, and it was like I don't know, like thirty knots onshore. It was pretty gnarly, but we just wanted to go out and have a look at it at that size. But yeah, yeah like I reckon it would have handled it if it was a, maybe a little bit shorter period and a bit more, bit more tight on it. But yeah, I definitely saw the reef a few times on that that day. Yeah, it must be frightening for I guess surfers don't sur- don't surf when they can see the reef or the the top of the. So it's basically what did you describe it as a. It's just like a deep water bombing. I, I suppose the best best description of it is is like a big granite pinnacle surrounded by deep pinnacle. water. That was the word. Yeah. So you could see the pinnacle, and yeah, you wouldn't touch it if you can see it, but otherwise you can. Yeah. See it. I suppose being a pinnacle, like a lot of typical waves break in shallow water, and the shallow water following the wave breaking. The way that this wave breaks because it's like 
deep and then shallow and then deep again. Like the hold downs there are pretty brutal because people like fall and then they get sucked in this kind of underwater waterfall down the other side of the pinnacle. So, you know, it's hard to know how deep they're going, but based on the stories and how many paddles they're doing to get back to the surface, you'd, you'd assume it would be at least 10 metres. Wow. You're talking about holding your breath for quite a substantial time and being sucked down 10 metres as well. Yeah, it's it's a weird wave as well because the like it's not necessarily the biggest heaviest waves out there that'll give you the worst hold downs. Like I've seen there was a kid last year who didn't have any buoyancy on and he got held under for four waves and ended up coming up blacking out and had to be resuscitated. Um but you know the wave that he came off on was like an 8 footer. Yeah. So it's it's not necessarily the size that is important there. Like some of the worst big falls i've seen out there they're underwater for five seconds but yeah it's it's just so hard to predict what that wave's going to do to you actually it was one of my questions as well have you ever been caught on the inside of one of these waves when you're doing photography no so i shoot predominantly off a jet ski and i don't use water housings for my gear because i like to be able to um, rack my zoom Um, so where you sit Typically, I'll start the the sequence at around 200 mils. I shoot on a 70 to 200, and then I'll rack it back and end up somewhere around the kind of 120 to 140 mark as you're tracking the wave through. So, yeah, I mean it's a personal preference, but I I prefer to shoot from a ski and without a housing to be able to you know maximise every feature of the camera. No, I didn't know that either. So, have you ever been caught out of position on the jet ski? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Plenty of times. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, there's such a big shock wave that comes off that wave that, you know, it'll flip skis in the channel. But yeah, so sometimes you're punching through walls of white water and shooting other waves. I've sucked seaweed up into the jet unit and had to like pretty much punch it over the lip of like, I don't know, like an eight footer and free fall and ditch the ski midair and that kind of things. But yeah, I mean, the longer I've been going down there, the kind of more, you learn the personalities of the waves and your ability to kind of read what's going to happen is, yeah, luckily that stuff doesn't happen much anymore. So the advice is this is really not for, well, it's not for beginner photographers definitely and it's not for, you basically have to be a water person, don't you, to be out there and have the confidence to be shooting in those conditions? Yeah, I mean the way I look at it is that like anyone theoretically could get out there and do it but, you really got to ask yourself the one question of like, if say I get out there and my jet ski breaks and there's no one else there, like, what am I going to do? Mm. Like for me, I've grown up on the ocean, you know, I spent nine years driving boats, reading weather charts, like mm. doing all this stuff. I feel quite comfortable on the ocean and, you know, I've studied the topography of the land and where's a safe channel and where do you swim to? Can you get up on those rocks and all that kind of thing. But a lot of people just kind of jump on a ski, head out there and think it's all good. But, at the end of the day, you can go out and do it safe and come back in and you think nothing of it. But if something went wrong, people would die out there for sure. And just for photographers who are at that level, who can get out there and shoot some of these bigger waves, what, what do you recommend in terms of a setup? Uh, yeah, in terms of camera gear. Yeah, I mean... And a jet ski. Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> stylistically, it's so like different whether you want to get in with a fisheye and shoot that kind of style. But then you have to put yourself in a, a position that's like incredibly dangerous. For me, it's like I like resolution. So I'm picking the biggest sensor that I can possibly get and then pairing that with some really clean glass. So most of the lenses I shoot are kind of 2.8s. But I think if you're doing the housing stuff, definitely getting that prime lens and probably the favorite amongst a lot of surf photographers I know is that 85, 85 prime. 85 prime. I'm actually writing this down myself. So. <laughs> <laughs> having just bought a water housing i've got a 50 mil on the canon 80d so it's not the it's not the top end but it's a pretty good camera and i bought it off a surf photographer based in ocean grove here on the coast so can't wait to get out there and take a few more shots with it but yeah 50 mil but so you recommend 85 mil prime yeah 50s i used to shoot a bit of 50 when i did do a bit of water stuff but um yeah i was like you can achieve the same photo with pretty much any focal length until you go up to a fisheye by just stepping yourself further back. So it just comes back to the framing and what kind of content you want to produce that suits your style. Um, but, yeah, having that 85, it's there's enough of a punch in on that where you can kind of set yourself back so you're not, like, 
in a really critical spot where you're going to be having to really keep an eye on what the wave's doing um, just puts you in a bit of a safer spot. And I think that's probably a good way to approach surf photography, especially if you're getting into it, is start further back and then work your way in. That's a good tip as well, start further back, just to reduce the danger as well, I guess. Would you consider getting into the drop zone, diving in and you just think it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, for me, it's like... um, like a water housing, as I'm sure you un- you've, you've just discovered, is like a ridiculously expensive investment. And yeah. for me, like I'm not 100% happy with the gear that I'm using at the moment. So I want to wait until I'm 100% confident in my equipment before I spend another four grand on kitting out a housing for that. But yeah, it's definitely something I do want to look into in the future and not just for surf stuff, for kind of wildlife um, photography and underwater filming and things like that. Actually, a question I missed before, and I'm sure a lot of listeners were wondering, what's it like swimming with tiger sharks? Yeah, it's cool, man. They're, they're, uh, they're a pretty mellow shark to swim with here in Australia, and it's pretty interesting with the whole shark debate in the world and things like that. And, you know, I think in the French Polynesia and kind of um, all those kind of other islands that tiger sharks are responsible for a lot of attacks, whereas it feels like here in WA at least they're one of the sharks that I'd probably worry about the least in the water. Um, yeah, we've swum with some pretty big ones and got friends and that jump in on dead whale carcasses and swim with them and there'll be, you know, 20, 30 tiger sharks there. But yeah, they're definitely not not one that I'd immediately be worried about. That's I've never heard a tiger shark described as mellow, so that's good to hear. And <laughs> have you run into the, the big boy out there ever, the great white? Um, yeah, we did. We had a couple of interactions with them when I was driving whale shark boats where they did kind of um, come up and we had to pull our people out of the water and we had a big five-metre um, shark swim right up to the marlin board, had all of our 20 passengers on the back and um, kind of swam straight up to the marlin board and then down the side of the boat. And you know, I knew that um, people wouldn't get back in the water if they uh, thought it was a great white and for some reason... They believed me when I said, oh, it was just a nice big tiger shark that swam past the boat. And then we drove like 50 metres away and jumped back in on a whale shark over there. So I think it's like, it's just different where you are. And like in Exmouth, at least, it feels like the sharks up there, there's less chance of there being a kind of an attack. Whereas down south, I think they're really in predation mode down here. So, but yeah, I haven't run into one physically down in Margaret River, but yeah. Yeah, because it seems like such a, a hotspot, Margaret River, and especially that southwest corner of WA. Seems every other day. I guess it's just it's it's the news and the media as well. It just blows up the minute there's a shark attack. So in comparison to the amount of people in the water and people surfing every, each and every day all over Australia, that's really not much, yeah. but seems to be a bit of a hotspot. Yeah, and it's <clears throat> I think the media has uh, a, a pretty big, pretty big role in that and it's actually a real shame the way they're going about doing this and this kind of fear-mongering campaign about sharks like the activity is definitely there and we are seeing more more and more sharks in the southwest region but you know there was an incident the other day where they like it was all over the news and a newspaper article was on today tonight or some crap and it was a shark attack in the southwest and all this big hype about it. And it was a lady, she stepped on a wobbygong and it like it bit her foot. And it's like <laughs> you can't be putting stuff like that in the media and then riding this shark train because it's just generating fear. And and it's the same thing when they're like closing beaches for a 1.5-metre hammerhead or a bronzy. It's like show me when one of them has ever attacked anyone. Yeah. Like, you're basically doing the whole boy who cried wolf thing and like, now there's so many people down here that if they close a beach or do something because of a shark sighting, they're going to go out anyway. Whereas if they did it just for like species like big white pointers and things like that, then people learn it and trust it that they know if that shark siren goes off, get out because it is a pointer, not like a, a two foot angry wobbygong that's going to come and nibble your toes. Actually, it reminds me of the story last year of the French tourist at Bell's Beach who got bitten on the foot as well. I think that was a thrasher shark, which I think it was a decent size, like three or four foot or something. So it looked terrifying. It was caught on video and it was the the top story that night on the national news. So you saw that. Yeah, I think it's just clickbait stuff really, isn't it? You know, if you yeah, write shark attack headline, everyone's going to click on it. <laughs> <laughs> and you saw the guy the next day. Going yeah, up. I actually saw the guy the next day straight back out in the water. So 
Yeah. So does it affected you mentally or anything like that? Because we just started the podcast and it's kind of asking questions and it's like, mate, couldn't care less, like straight back in the water. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, like yeah. any architects has there been at Bells Beach? There's not very many in recorded yeah. history anyway. Sure, report on it and make stories about it, but make, make sure they're like factually accurate and report on things that actually people need to be concerned about. You know, if there's a, if there is a five metre white that's been spotted at the same beach seven days in a row, and that, yeah. that deserves a publication because people need to know that. Yeah, a lot of people say, oh, you're mad surfing, like with the sharks. And then I read a stat that you've got more chance of being hit by a cow and dying from being hit by a cow. So I just come back with that every time. Man, more people get killed by vending machines than sharks this year. Exactly. <laughs> 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 No one walks around thinking, you know, look at that deadly vending machine or look at that deadly cow in that paddock. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's sad, man. It's real sad. I like to think of it that way when I'm out in the ocean, just for peace of mind as well. But um, I spoke briefly about your award last year for the 2020 Nikon Surf Photographer of the Year. I understand you could only submit three photos from for the competition. Do you want to? Because you've got so many good photos on your Instagram and I can only imagine the, the stuff you have in your archives that you've never published. You already talked about your portrait of stuff that you haven't published. But take us through how you selected three photos for that competition and then one of those photos was the actual winner. I mean, it's probably a bit of an anticlimactic story, to be honest. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I just basically got informed that that competition was out there and I should should enter it and... I was literally just going through because my process for like, I suppose, keeping up your feed in Instagram and things like that is you just sit down and edit a photo. For me, it's like my daily practice about developing my skills in Photoshop and then also having some content to produce at the end of the day. So I basically just had to edit those three photos that week. And I knew um, that shot of Dan that won, that was probably one of my favorites from that year, just because like the wave had so much texture and yeah, it was like, it was just a nice big heavy session down there. So, but yeah, I mean, I, I actually completely forgot that I'd even entered them into the competition <laughs> when I got the email saying I'd won. <laughs> yeah. There can be a real lack of motivation to enter competitions, can't there? Cause you just know that you're up against so many thousands of applications and actually it's nothing, nothing to be snuffed at either with, like it was a pretty serious judging panel and I understand that Stephanie Gilmore was one of the judges on the panel as well. So congratulations on winning the award. Was there, what sort of prize pack was there? Uh, it was a Z6. Um, yeah, no, the, it was a Z7 camera um, okay. for the photography one. But yeah, I was spewing because I literally had just bought that same camera two <laughs> months before. <laughs> <laughs> did you put the other one on gumtree yeah yeah no i just sold it straight away and um but yeah i mean it was it was awesome to to have won it but yeah i suppose it's some people are right into that stuff and yeah that's that's good but yeah i mean yeah, it's just another thing for me really i looked up articles for ren mcgann doing a bit of research for this podcast and there's about three pages of articles on that award so did that lead to work and other things not necessarily work, no, and it, yeah, it did. It did a bunch of exposure and media releases and things like that, and yeah, I found it a little bit full on to be honest. It was like you know all these newspapers ringing up to have articles and interviews and things like that, and I'm, I'm no never really one to get too involved in that side of things, so it was a bit overwhelming. But it's just part of the package, really, isn't it? Yeah, if you enter something like that and you win it, then people want to want to know what what the photo was about, I guess. In terms of your income from business and all the rest, it's kind of related as well. So do you concentrate on just selling prints? Like you've kind of given up on magazines and publications and things and you focus on prints? Yeah. I mean, if I get something that's absolutely amazing, I'll I'll hit up a few publications, but I rarely even bother contacting them anymore and occasionally someone will hit me up on Instagram wanting to use a, an image for that. But I suppose where the most of the money comes from is um, doing commercial stuff. So shooting for businesses and things like that and content generation and websites and then had some long kind of slow build-up relationship stuff with other brands and 
just providing content for them. Um, and then there's the whole backside of doing weddings and kind of family shoots and things like that as well. I see you do do that. So you, you generate income from stuff that's totally unrelated to ocean photography, surf photography. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's like what I put forward on the internet is what I kind of like, that's my passion. That's what I love doing. I don't particularly care at all if I make money from doing it. It's just basically a journey about me doing it and learning these things. So yeah, I mean, people, people either love or hate my work. I've, I've copped a lot of, a lot of shit from people saying that I doctor images too hard and things like that. So it is what it is. Yeah, well, I did see a few critiques on your photos and, yeah, the, the editing thing did come up. How much editing do you do for photos? Um, yeah, I mean, I do a fair bit, but that's that's my unique take on it, you know. And, you know, I've got some strong things to say about it as well. Like, if you don't like someone's work, just leave it at that. You don't have to follow their career. You don't have to like their posts. You don't have to have any engagement with it. But art is so personal and I'd rather be unique and hated rather than popular and just another person that's doing the same cookie cutter stuff that's out there so it is what it is I've got my my editing process and I do take it through the same process every time you know but yeah people like it or hate it yeah well that's I think that's a sign of a good photographer someone who gets critiqued so I guess you take it as a as a compliment don't you I mean if you didn't get critiqued you wouldn't you'd be no one wouldn't you so (laughs) If it's uh, putting a glass half full spin on it. And actually I heard a good quote that I can't remember who said it, but might've been one of the big photographers from America. Might've been Chris Burkhart that said, you know, photography is not about taking photos. It's about creating photos as well. Yeah. And that's kind of the approach that I took at at the very start when I was learning it, I just kind of looked around at the industry and saw, you know, people, a lot of people just using Lightroom and banging out their images like that and, I just thought, you know, if I'm going to do something, I'd like to learn all the tools that I have at my disposal to try and produce something that's uniquely mine and the best that I can do, as well as, you know, carrying on that whole philosophy of just learning every day. And Photoshop for me, like, answered all those questions. That that program's such a beast. And, Mm. you know, I I think, I feel like a lot of people don't utilise it enough uh, uh, and they're kind of leaving a lot on the table about, potential in what they can create in their own artwork with that program. Yeah. In terms of, you know, editing photos, like Lightroom's great for basic sort of editing, but the power of Photoshop is unbelievable. I learned Photoshop a couple of years ago, but I've forgotten most of it, but actually a good segue into our next question. I'm hogging the microphone just because it's <laughs> my favorite subject, which is photography, <laughs> but I'll pass it That's over right. to you to ask some questions about favorite apps and resources. Um. Do you have any favourite tools to stay on track and keep your day running nice and smooth? Actually, let's start with apps for photography. So you did mention Photoshop. Is there any anything beyond Photoshop or is that king for you? Yeah, pretty much anything that you see on Instagram will be a Photoshop edit. I use Lightroom for commercial work and like wedding work and things like that because you are dealing with, you know, gigantic catalogues that you've got to hand over. So yep. um, even now I'll pick out, my kind of hero shots from those catalogs and then pump them through like uh, Photoshop as well. Yep. Um, but yeah, I mean, Premiere Pro is something that I'm deep diving into now, but outside of that, yeah, I don't really use anything else. Oh, Photo Mechanic. That's, that, that's wicked. Photo Mechanic. What's that one? Uh, so it's like a, a really quick way to grade and catalog your images. So, cause um, when you shoot like on the high resolution bodies, you know, that, the Z7 system and D850 were spitting out like 100 megabyte raw files. And because they take up so much room, I was unable to kind of shoot a JPEG backup and things like that. So trying to import, you know, 3,000 photos into Lightroom, my computer was just crashing every time. Yeah, I'd so, imagine, especially so mechanic. shooting raw. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's brutal, man. So <laughs> photo mechanic allows you to kind of like import 300 raw file or 3000 raw files or whatever and it spits out like a a a 50 kilobyte preview of that image and you can but it's it's really good quality preview images so you can really fast go through and you you have your keyboard hotkeys and you can just like scroll down 
press T for tag, and then you like at the end of the catalog, you'll just select all the tag files and drag them over to your your um, save folders. Oh wow, that's cool. That does sound cool. So Photo Mechanic and, and Adobe Premiere is a video editing software, yeah. isn't it? So obviously a busy man, uh, family portraits, weddings, and all the rest. Any favorite apps for managing your day or your timetable? <laughs> No, I'm absolutely crap at that. <laughs> yeah, I've got to really got to get on to figuring out something to kind of manage my time a bit better, and I just kind of stumble my way through each day, and hopefully I don't miss anything at the moment. But actually, I might chip in here with a tool I've found recently. It's called Toggle. Toggle.com. You can actually track and manage your time that you spend on different apps and different services, and writing emails. You can basically track every minute of every day. And at the end of the week, you can see where you wasted time, where you were productive and all the rest. So it's a good one. So well, I toggle. Can do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can't be world-class at everything, can you? So. <laughs> Are you working on anything at the moment with your videography? Yeah, so I've got a couple of little ideas in the pipeline. A few of them are, like, are going to be pretty hard to try and pull off, but the video series I'm kind of challenging myself to do to try and force myself to learn these techniques and storytelling and things like that that are so critical to producing content that makes sense and is engaging is um, kind of doing a short series on a bunch of different athletes and interesting people that are doing stuff. So aiming at look producing like a, you know, eight to 10 minute short documentary about that person and why they like or do their activity that they do. So I just went and shot one with a surfboard shaper um, who's also a big wave rider down in Denmark. Um, so, oh. yeah. And what's his name? Uh, ben Rufus. Ben Rufus. Shout out to Ben Rufus. He'll be on Instagram. You can check him out. Yeah, he goes under the name Ruffles Truffles Surfboards, I think, and he's, um just makes the most phenomenal boards. They're just absolute works of art. They're, you know, millimetre perfect everywhere, but he's, like, really into his resin art in the, in the boards. So just making his... Absolutely beautiful boards. Um, so went down and shot yeah, kind of three days with him um, about shaping boards and doing a couple of resin pours. And anything underwater? Yeah, we're going to be working with another mate who's in Exmouth to do a kind of cross-pollinated free dive and big wave surf kind of thing uh, towards maybe the end of this year or next year and try and incorporate it into a um, short film festival and just kind of encourage local artists to kind of submit their stuff and hopefully give away some prizes. Awesome. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. We'll keep an eye out for that and well, hopefully we can get over to Western Australia sometime this year. I'd love to get back. We did three trips there two years ago and last year none. You just spoke a little bit there about inspiration and athletes. Do you, do you want to tell us who inspires you, maybe first in life and then... Well, let's go with business first, photography, and then who inspires you in life? I, I, I could find inspiration from anyone doing anything, really. It's more about, like, who they are and what they're chasing and what motivates them. So I feel like celebrities and things like that aren't necessarily a great resource for inspiration because they've, they've kind of, they're very spoiled for what they do. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm inspired by people who are just going after it and, achieving whether they're achieving high or achieving low I think that's more important the person who's got nothing and is striving to get somewhere is probably doing more for themselves than someone who's got everything and in terms of advice for budding surf photographers or photographers in general what would be your number one piece of advice something that I just drill home for everyone and you know like I suppose you can spit photography into two different categories and one of them's like the, the content generation side of things and then second is the post-production side of things and you know I don't think that I'm specifically an incredible photographer I think I'm a good editor I've focused most of my attention on learning software and learning the ability to create the piece of art that I see in my imagination with the photo content that I have which may not necessarily be the best so like I would encourage anyone of any kind of discipline in photography to make sure you learn the the software tools that are available with you because some of the images you have in your mind like you can't achieve them without knowing how to use these post-production softwares and I think it's going to 
do nothing but increase your potential in the industry, especially going forward now that it seems like everyone can produce good content to really think about how you can separate yourself from the field. And the only way to do that is to try and learn stuff that people are too slack to learn. So sharpen the axe, basically, as they say, in terms of software tools and... Yeah, and like the big thing that I try and teach everyone is like the no limit editing. Like you don't have to post the photos, but unless you go on there and you actually try do something that's just crazy, you might just stumble into like this weird little niche that no one's doing you know you might invert your color palette or you know whatever but people are too scared to take risks with their edits and I think for me that's what I did early on I just pushed images way too far and I just sit down edit it butcher an image Mm. and then delete it and you know it's that over time repeating that process it kind of got fine-tuned and now that's my style of image that I do but you just never know what you'll stumble across in that and it'll, if nothing else, and you still like producing the sharp, clean, classic image, doing that process of pushing stuff too far, it's going to speed up your learning process, I think, more than anything. Yeah, I think good advice. Good but advice. I'm actually writing some of this down. So like, it's such a big field and such a competitive field. So to get any tips or advice is so valuable, I think, especially from someone of your caliber. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, it's it's hard to stand out in a crowd of 50 million people but yeah I think forget about what people think about your work and just do something that you're happy with one thing I skipped over you seem like a pretty resilient bloke and I know I read before you had a bit of a few health issues in your early 20s and a bit of chemotherapy do you think that helped with your resilience and your you know your your mental strength for sure man yeah I think like it's baptism by fire kind of thing and it's like I viewed it kind of as like hormetic conditioning for the brain, you know, like you go through a trauma, you, you learn, you grow and you adapt from it and perspective about what's important and it gives you the ability to just kind of filter out the junk about the people that you want around you and the content that you want to kind of store in the brain. But I'm super grateful for that experience. I mean, it sucked going through it at the time, but it just gives you a bit of clarity about life and what's important. Yeah, it seems like you've got a pretty good handle on what's important in life and what's not, so it's great to see. Yeah, we really appreciate your time today, Ren. It's been an awesome chat. I could keep chatting for an hour about uh, the ins and outs of photography and surf photography and building a business as a photographer, but our podcast is all about creatives having a go, and that's definitely what you're doing. So really appreciate your time today. It's been so good to reach out and interview someone from Margaret River and, you know, three hours across, I think it's lunchtime where you are and it's mid-afternoon where we are, so... Really appreciate your time today. Where can we go to keep following your story? Keep up to date with some of your videos coming out as well? Um, yeah, mainly just Instagram. Um, and and I have been kind of dipping my toe into the YouTube world. So a lot of the short form documentary stuff I'll be doing will be produced on that. And um, What's your tag on YouTube? Uh, just rent. Everything's just Ren again. Yeah. Well, thanks yeah. for your time today. It's been great chatting to you and hearing your story. Yeah, that was a that was a super fun chat. Nice. Yeah, it was awesome. I, I could keep going, so maybe we need a part two. But <laughs> where can we go just to follow our story and the Surf Coast Creatives and Ren's story on the Surf Coast Creatives? Uh, you can head to the website surfcoastcreatives.com or over on the on Facebook or Instagram. Yeah, at, at Surf Coast Creatives. Yep, that's it. Once again, Ren, we really appreciate your time today. Stay on the line there. We're going to hit stop on the podcast. Thank you very much for telling your story with us today or sharing your story with us. Legends, anytime.